Thank you, Joyce, for that beautiful instrumental. Well, there was a time um, when our four sons were growing up that one of their favorite snack foods was goldfish. Not real goldfish, but the cheesy cracker variety of goldfish. Uh, They were crunchy and cheesy, and my boys took bags full of these to school in their lunches. They ate, ate them by the bowls full at home. And I have to say, uh, they, were, they were pretty good. They were, they were kind of addicting once you got started. So one day I had a craving for a cheesy, crunchy snack, and I went to the pantry to find our big, giant carton of goldfish, which we always had in our pantry. And when I picked it up, I found this. Can you hear that? There was exactly one goldfish in the giant I'm like, really? Because I knew exactly what had happened. I knew that someone in our family, my wife didn't eat them, so it was one of my boys, had helped himself to a bowl of cheesy, crunchy goldfish, but realizing if he totally emptied the carton, he would have to go through all the trouble of carrying the carton the seven or eight steps to our recycle bin, and that would mean taking the risk of the recycle bin being mostly full, and it wouldn't fit into the recycle bin, which means he would have to take the entire bag of recycles out to the garage and put it into the garbage can. And so he made a decision to leave one goldfish in the container so that someone else could do all that work. And I know that because on occasion... I've been known to leave that last scoop of ice cream in the ice cream carton in the freezer. We're in the final week of our series called Pathway to Purpose. We've been talking about what we're calling the six G's of the discipleship pathway. Gather, gospel, grow, groups, go, and give. We're talking about these things because they're the the building blocks of the Christian life. They sort of summarize all that it means to be a follower of Jesus, and they are building blocks of the church itself. We started a couple of weeks ago with gather and gospel. We are gathered people, and we are a declaring people. Like the choir sang this morning, we love to tell the story of Jesus and his love. Last week, Pastor Jeff talked about grow and groups, and he asked a great question. I went back and I was listening to his sermons to make sure I knew what he was talking about, and he asked a great question. He said, are you growing up or are you just growing older? Now, I took that question just a little bit personally. (laughs) Like, what are you trying to say here, Jeff? But actually, it's really good news that spiritual growth has very little to do with our biological age. Paul writes in Philippians chapter 1, In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion till the day of Christ Jesus. So that's true for all of us, no matter our chronological age. Now today we dig a little deeper into what it means to grow as we take on the last two of our six G's, go and give. Now here's how we define these two words. Go, as followers of Jesus, we understand that God has work for us to do, and we believe that he has called us to go and serve our church, our community, our neighbors, and our world. And then give. As followers of Jesus, we believe that God is an incredibly generous God, and we understand that when we give generously, it reflects his heart and makes an impact in this world, and it's good for our souls. 
I want to begin with just one verse today. It's in 1 Peter chapter 4. It's verse 10. Let me read it for you. Peter writes, Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. First thing I want to talk about this morning is the grace of service. The grace of service. How many of you know, I know a lot of you guys will know this, but how many of you know what a long snapper is in football? Okay, a lot of you. Okay, this will make sense then. Well, the long snapper is the guy who bends over the ball, looks back between his legs, and snaps it back to the punter on a punt or to the holder on a field goal or an extra point. And it's a very particular skill. Uh, it requires a great deal of practice because you have to be able to, to propel the ball between your legs backward in a perfect spiral to an exact spot so the punter can catch it or the holder can catch it so the play can be executed properly. It's a very important thing in football. It's one of the most difficult jobs on a football team, and it's one of the least glamorous jobs. First, because you're looking at the world upside down, backward between your legs, not the most glorious position to be in. Second, because after you snap the ball, you have to try to block a guy, a crazed defensive lineman who you can't see who's going to try to knock you over and block the punt. Third, because you never get noticed as a long snapper unless you make a mistake. And everybody's like, oh, the long snapper, right? Well, a few years ago, uh, one of my son's high school football team was playing in the state playoffs. They were in the quarterfinal game, just two games away from the state championship game. They were leading by, I think, five points uh, with about three minutes to go in the game, and they had to punt the ball from deep on their own side of the field. Uh, so the punt team with the punter and the long snapper came running onto the field. That was a rainy, windy, muddy, nasty day. The ball was wet and slippery, which meant a lot could go wrong with a punt. If the ball slipped in the long snapper's hands and he made a bad snap, it could cause a fumble and the other team would get the ball very close to our goal line and the game could easily be lost. That was what I was thinking. So I was really nervous at this point in the game. The whole season seemed to depend on this one play, on this one long snap. And then I watched in terror as this little skinny kid ran onto the field as the long snapper. He had a very clean uniform, which meant he had played hardly any in the whole game. Uh, he didn't look like a football player at all. And I could see just in my mind's eye the whole season just going down the tubes. It was my son's senior year. But then that kid snapped the ball perfectly to the punter who caught it cleanly, punted the ball, the defense held the other team, and we went on to win that game, and two weeks later, won the state championship. After the game, we all ran down on the field to congratulate the players. We looked for our son, who happened to be the quarterback of the team. He had lots of people around him, reporters and so forth. And then I went looking for that kid. I remember his number, 64. I went and found him, and I ran up to him. I'd never met him before. I ran up to this kid, and I grabbed him, and I hugged him. He looked kind of confused and a little scared. And I grabbed him. And I said, son, that was an awesome snap. You saved the season. He wasn't a star player. In fact, later I found out from my son that the only thing he did for that team the whole season was snap for punts. That's all he did. Didn't play any other. He wasn't a good enough player. But he could do that one thing. He had that one unique ability, and he used it to serve his teammates. The Bible teaches that we were created to serve. In Ephesians 2, Paul writes, For it is by grace 
You have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It's the gift of God, not by works so no one can boast. This is what we mean by experience grace. This is the work Jesus finished on the cross through which we receive spiritual rebirth. But he continues, For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Paul says, we are God's handiwork. The word translated handiwork there is a, means a thing that has been made, workmanship. And that takes us back to Genesis, the very beginning of the Bible. God's handiwork of creation. He made all that is. God's handiwork in creating Adam. And then giving Adam a work to do, to tend and care for the garden. We all remember that story. And sometimes I... I've talked about this before, but sometimes I think about that when I mow my, my lawn, my yard. I like to mow the yard. Um, I get kind of a satisfaction uh, in mowing my yard. I fire up the 30-year-old mower I have, and I just go back and forth, back and forth, make the stripes, you know, and, I, and when I'm done, I look at them, you know, the, the horizontal stripes, diagonal stripes, and I just feel this, this satisfaction. And I think I'm sort of obeying God's command to subdue the earth. It's like my little dominion right there. In the very beginning, we were created to work, and now Paul says we are God's handiwork, meaning that we are recreated in Christ to serve. And it all begins with the experience of grace. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. I talk about this often, but the gospel promises us four news. A new heart through the forgiveness of sin. A new identity by being adopted into God's family. New purpose, which we're going to talk about today. A new destiny that is resurrection life in the new heaven and new earth. And I think we have this tendency in the church, those of us who, who follow Jesus for a long time, we have a kind of tendency to shrink the gospel down to believe in Jesus Get your sins forgiven, go to heaven when you die. That is, experience grace, get a new heart, and then wait for your eternal destiny. And that's true. We celebrate the promise of the gospel, but we can kind of skip over the new identity part and the new purpose part. Paul says we are created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Now, it's really important to get the order of this right. If you ask the average person out on the street what it takes to get to heaven, if they even believe in heaven, they will say something like, well, you have to be a good person, right? If, if you do more good than bad in your life, if the good outweighs the bad, then yeah, yeah, you'll, you'll, you'll go to heaven. Many people, in fact, I would guess to say most people, think God thinks like that because that's how we think. Do enough good works, and I'll grant you entrance into eternal life. That makes sense to us. That's how we think. But it's not the gospel. The gospel is not do enough good works so that you deserve to get the reward of heaven. The gospel is you don't deserve the reward of heaven. You can't do enough good to outweigh the sin that's already in your heart and in your life. But Jesus did that for you. He took the weight and the burden of your sin on the cross. And by his grace, you received the gift of forgiveness, new heart, his righteousness. And everything else comes as a result of that grace. Therefore, service 
is an expression of grace. Back to 1 Peter 4. Each of you should use whatever gift you have to receive to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. Other translations say the manifold or great variety of the grace of God. I want to focus on two words here for a moment. Gift and grace. The word translated gift is the Greek word charismata from which we get the word charisma. The word translated grace is caritas from which we get our word charity. And they're closely connected throughout the New Testament. In Romans chapter 12, the Apostle Paul writes, For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body. And each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given each one of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it's teaching, then teach. If it's to encourage, then give encouragement. If it's giving, then give generously. If it's to lead, do it diligently. If it's to show mercy, do it cheerfully. Now, several things we need to understand here about gifts, what the Bible means by gifts. This passage alone lifts gifts like prophesying, which is something like preaching, serving, teaching, encouraging, giving, leading, and showing mercy. Other New Testament passages list other kinds of gifts, like miracles, healing, helping, administration, hospitality. Now, many Bible scholars today believe that none of these lists, they occur in three or four places in the New Testament, is actually exhaustive, meaning that there are a great variety of gifts and abilities that the Holy Spirit gives and can use for His purposes. Just here's how I think of spiritual gifts. There are sort of upfront gifts like preaching, teaching, leading, and we have a tendency to kind of focus on those gifts. Like those are the gifted people, the people who do those upfront things. But there are many, many more what I would call behind-the-scenes gifts. Serving, mercy, encouragement, helping. And there are a thousand different ways those gifts can take shape. Secondly, we all have a gift or gifts. There is no such thing as an ungifted Christian. I think it's easy for us to assume that because we may not have an upfront gift, well, you know, I'm not, I'm not that, that good at public speaking, I'm not, not really a teacher, that we can assume that we're not gifted, that we're just sort of an ordinary Christian. No, there's no such thing as an ordinary Christian. If you help make coffee today, as Nicole does almost every week, you use the gift of helping. If you brought food for the potluck today, you use the gift of serving. If you reached out to a friend who lost a loved one, you use the gift of mercy. When I hugged that long snapper, I was using the gift of encouragement. We are each more gifted than we could begin to imagine. All of us. Gifts come from the grace of God. The word grace means undeserved kindness or favor. It's a word that points us toward the extravagant generosity of God. Scripture is saying that not only are we forgiven and saved by grace, we are also gifted by grace. And that grace expresses itself 
in service. Our gifts are intended to be used for service. Now, I'm not a big tool guy. I don't have many tools, but I have some tools. And I have some tools, actually, that I uh, never use. I found this in my garage yesterday. I don't really know. I don't know what this is called. I don't recall. I don't know why I have it. I've never used it. It's some fancy kind of plier, I think. It spends its entire life sitting on a shelf in my garage. I could probably use it for something, but I know it's not creative to sit in my garage. It's created to accomplish things. It's created to do work. And that's how we are. This is why we say that for what comes first is experience grace. Then comes grow in faith. And then make an impact where you are. This happens when we put our gifts to work. And lastly, our service is empowered by the Holy Spirit. In 1 Corinthians 12, Paul teaches us about the relationship between gifts and the Holy Spirit. He says, there are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit distributes them. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but in all of them and in everyone, it is the same God at work. Now, I want to talk just for a bit about the Holy Spirit. To be clear, the Holy Spirit is God. We believe the Bible presents God as a triune God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is God. But the work of the Holy Spirit is often overlooked or misunderstood. Now, part of that's by design. The Spirit does not draw attention to himself, but always points us to Christ. But what does the Spirit do? Let me mention just a few key things, what the Spirit does in me and in you. First, the Holy Spirit is the seal of our salvation. In Ephesians 1, Paul writes, And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, experienced grace, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are in God's possession to the praise of his glory. So when you put your faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit entered your life as a guarantee of your salvation. You may have been aware of that. It might have been an emotional experience. You may have been unaware of that, but it happened because it's a promise. Next, the Spirit guides and teaches. Jesus said in John 16, but when He, the Spirit of truth, comes, He will guide you into all truth. The Holy Spirit helps us grow. In Galatians 5 we read, but the fruit of the Spirit, that is what the Holy Spirit wants to grow in all of us all the time, is love, joy, peace, forbearance, or patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such thing there is no law. And the Holy Spirit distributes gifts. Did you see what Paul said? There are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit distributes them. So when we come to faith in Jesus, the Holy Spirit guarantees our salvation, begins to teach and guide us into truth, begins to grow fruit in our lives, and distributes gifts to us by God's grace. And the Holy Spirit wants to put those gifts to work. It's so easy for us, I think, because we have become largely a consumer and a, and a, and a uh, an observational society, right? It's so easy to say, well, there's lots of people more gifted than me. 
There's other people who can do that. There's lots of people better than me at carrying goldfish cartons to the recycle bin. So maybe I'll just let somebody else do that work. In Ephesians 4, Paul writes, Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. We, we each share in the grace of service. Secondly, I want to talk about the grace of generosity. The grace of generosity. Years ago, I met a couple who started coming to Chapel Street, then First Baptist of Geneva. Shortly after they began attending, I met with the, the husband uh, for coffee and just got some of their life story. And in the process of the conversation, he told me that he and his wife had met in college at a major state university. Neither one were believers when they met, but they got involved with the campus ministry. They both came to faith in Christ, and they were mentored by an older couple in the faith. And one of the things they learned early on was that they um, were to grow in generosity. So they committed early on uh, to give 10% of their combined income uh, to the Lord. And I was very impressed by that because uh, I know that that's challenging, and it's countercultural. And I know how few, even faithful believers, ever reach that level of generosity. So I was impressed. And then he went on to say that a couple of years into their marriage, uh, as he was beginning his career, they felt compelled, urged by the Spirit to increase their generosity by 1%. So they went from 10% to 11%. And then he said, we felt compelled the next year to go to, from 11% to 12%. And he said, we have been adding 1% every year. I said, how long have you been doing this? And he said, 30 years. In 1 Timothy, Paul writes, Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant or to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Paul is warning here that wealth is deceptive. Now, throughout Scripture, uh, material wealth is presented as both a blessing from God. We are to be grateful for our wealth, for our possessions, but it's also, at the same time, a dangerous temptation. In 1 Timothy, Paul writes, those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money, notice, not money, money is not evil, but the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. For some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. In Matthew 6, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus himself said, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moths and vermin, some translations say rust, destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moths and vermin do not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Now what Paul and Jesus are both saying here is that wealth, earthly treasure, is necessary for living, is a blessing from God, but it also has a way of making our hearts captive. And God wants our hearts to be set free. 
because generosity is at the very heart of God himself. Back to 1 Timothy 6. He says, Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant or to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. How often, I'll speak for myself, how often I can take for granted the generosity of God. How many of us thank God for the two rainy days we had this past week? Yeah, you know, maybe you wanted to play golf. Oh, I can't play golf today. What a gloomy day, right? Without rain, nothing grows. Without rain, everything dies. How easy it is to complain just to take for granted God's provision. God is lavishly generous in his nature. We all know John 3.16, but sometimes we miss one word, one little word. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. The whole gospel comes from the generous heart of God. In Ephesians 1, Paul writes, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, new heart, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished poured out in abundance on us. God is generous, and God's generosity produces blessing. Jumping to 2 Corinthians, Paul writes, Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. I want you to notice two things here. First, generosity does not begin in our bank accounts. It doesn't begin with our wallets. It begins in our hearts. Generosity is not primarily about our money at all. It's about our hearts. And that's because God does not want us to give reluctantly or under compulsion. He doesn't want us to give like we give when we pay our taxes. Imagine a wife says to her husband, you better bring me a bouquet of roses tonight to show me you love me or else. Of course, he would bring her roses that night, right? She might even enjoy those roses, but she still wouldn't know if he loves her, right? God wants us to give because our hearts are responding to the grace that he has lavished upon us. Secondly, notice that generosity produces corresponding blessing. And God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. What kind of blessing does God promise? There are some who teach that the blessing God promises is financial or material. You give 20 bucks, he'll give you back 40. That's a dangerous teaching. And it's a false gospel. The blessing of God is the satisfaction and joy of participating in his own extravagant generosity. The blessing is the satisfaction and joy of knowing we're making an impact in his eternal kingdom. The blessing is the promise that we are taking hold of the life that is truly life. Years ago, a man named Simon Gary began coming to our church. Some of you may remember Simon. He passed away in 2010. Simon was a widower in his 80s and was uh, gifted, <laughs> gifted with a rather 
curmudgeonly demeanor. Meaning, I mean, I, learned, I found out later he really wasn't a curmudgeon. He just tended to sound like one. Uh, Sai just had a way of always sounding unhappy or irritated about something. It, it was just a gift he had. In those days, um, in those days that we published a weekly bulletin, like we called it a worship guide, and we always included the church financials in a little box on the back, and Sai paid attention to those. Uh, and one summer, we were running a little bit behind uh, in, our, in our giving toward our, our, our general budget, and we published that. And that week, I, I got a call from Simon. He called me at my office, and as usual, he sounded a little irritated. He said, Pastor, I saw, I saw a report in the bulletin that church giving is behind budget. I said, yeah, yeah, we're a little behind at the moment. He said, well, I don't think that should happen. I want to make an appointment to come in and talk about it. So we made an appointment, and I assumed he was going to come in and criticize or complain about our leadership or our use of money or our debt or our fiscal responsibility, something like that. So I comes to my office, sits down and says, how far are we behind? And I said, well, uh, that's my voice now. I said, <laughs> I said, I said, I said, well, uh, we're, last week we were about 80,000 behind, but, but this week uh, we caught up a little bit. We're only about 30,000 behind. He said, well, pastor, you should have had me come in last week. <laughs> he took out a checkbook in my office and wrote a check for $30,000 right there on the spot. Cy so died, as I said, in 2010. We did a service right here. But I'll never forget the gift he gave that day and how badly I had misjudged him. It wasn't just the check. It was the example of someone who wasn't just growing older. He was growing up. In 2 Corinthians, Paul says, But just as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you also excel in this act of grace. Gather, gospel, grow, groups, go and give. So which of the G's? Is the Lord sort of urging you towards, the Spirit sort of urging you toward today? Maybe it's go and serve. Thank Him for your gift. Maybe confess you haven't thought of yourself that way. Ask Him to show you your giftedness and to put it to work in some small way. Maybe, maybe grow in giving. Maybe add 1%. Maybe begin with 1%. Why? To take hold of the life that is truly life. That's what He wants to give us. Will you bow with me as I pray? Lord God, today we thank you for your word. We thank you for your grace. It all starts with your grace, the pouring out of your love, your forgiveness, your promises, and the gifts you give us to each one of us. So teach us, compel us to put those gifts to work and set our hearts free to give that we may reflect your own great, generous heart and so together make an impact in your eternal kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray. Lord, again, thank you for inviting each one of us to be part of your great family, part of this church family. I thank you for the food that's been graciously prepared. Thank you for the fellowship we're going to enjoy around the tables. And now as we go, as your people gathered in your name to declare your praises and to generously share your grace with each other in our world. Bless us with your goodness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.